Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. Martha Schuping, author of The Four Steps to Healing and founder of The Rachel Network, giving a talk entitled Women's Health and Abortion. This talk is part of the Psychology, Sociology, and Social Work series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. All right, well, thank you so much for coming out to um, hear this presentation today. I'm really glad to see that there's so much interest in this topic. And um, I wanted, first of all, to disclose, because that's kind of how things are done now, that there are no financial conflicts in regard to this presentation. But I do want to tell you that in early days, when I was an undergraduate student, in my teens, I was an abortion counselor. So that was many years ago. And when I became an abortion counselor, I was a pre-medical student. I wanted things that would look good on my application. I wanted to get some clinical experience. And so I was helping out as a volunteer at a clinic. And one of the things that this clinic did was to help women. At that time, in 1972, before Roe, they were helping women to go to New York to have abortions if the women thought that they needed an abortion. And in 1973, when I decided that I wanted to take training to be a pregnancy counselor, um, they had abortion became legal through the act of the Supreme Court through their decision in Roe versus Wade, and so we could now uh, refer refer women locally, give them counseling, and refer them to local abortion clinics. So I was part of that, and as part of my training, the training I received was one evening of training to be an abortion counselor, and I was taught at that time that. The fetus is just a clump of cells, and there are no side effects to abortion. You know, imagine that, the only surgical procedure in the world with no side effects. And so that was my training, and I did get some experience as an abortion counselor. Sadly, the women today are getting similar quality of counseling by women who are similarly trained, that there are no standards for counseling licensure for the counselors who call themselves counselors at abortion clinics, and that's probably why about close to 90% of women who are surveyed after their abortions, when they look back, about 90%, 89% will say that they did not believe that they received adequate counseling. And that's because there really are not standards for who gets to do the counseling, and that sometimes they use high school dropouts, sometimes they use people with high school diplomas, but much less often they use people with bachelor's degrees and it's, I would say it's almost unheard of. If you can find a clinic where they are using people with master's degrees, I would like to know about it because I don't know of any, but I, I would like to find out if that's the case. But they, they don't have a standard. And in fact, in one of their abortion textbooks, they say that um, they give qualifications. An abortion provider wrote that it's much more important for people, if they're going to do counseling at an abortion clinic, they should be acquainted with, they should understand about abortion and abortion politics. But other than that, have a pleasant personality, good sense of humor, able to deal with stress. And as far as actually knowing anything about counseling skills, no, that's not a requirement. So that's my disclosure. I was an abortion counselor, but after I got into medical school and into my psychiatry training, I started encountering women who had terrible problems because of their abortion, coming seeking help. And so that's where I've ended up devoting a lot of my professional time over the last really 30 years, um, helping women and men to recover from the effects of abortion. And that's, I, wa I want to talk to you today about actually three areas. Let's, next slide. I'm sorry, I don't have a clicker today. So next, oh, whoops, the other direction, sorry. Okay, um, three things. The biggest thing that I'm gonna focus on is women at risk 
who are the women who are having mental health problems after abortion? The abortion provider side will say, oh, hardly anybody has any problems. But let's look at who are the women who are at risk, because there's actually consensus between pro-abortion researchers and pro-life researchers. There is consensus about risk factors that would make women in certain certain categories be more vulnerable to having problems. So we're going to talk a lot about that, but also then what are some of the problems? We're going to touch on that. That could be an hour or more, which we don't have time for. What are some of the problems that women experience after abortion? And then in a practical sense, how can you as future nurses, social workers, counselors, pastoral ministers, or friends, um, how can you help people who have had these problems? So next slide. Just again to restate, researchers on both sides of the abortion issue know that there are specific subgroups of women who are at increased risk for mental health problems after abortion. Um, this textbook is a um, abortion provider textbook. It was written by abortion providers for abortion providers to teach people how to do abortions. If you can't really see it clearly, but in the upper right hand corner, that is the logo that the National Abortion Federation was using in 1999. So that is an authoritative book from the abortion provider side. And I'm going to take some information from that. It's their top abortion providers who are editors of this. Okay, next. Um, and this book lists 14 risk factors. There's a table with 14 risk factors and some references, citations, to identify the, the, um, the risk factors for having mental health problems, that if you had one of these risk factors, you're more likely to have a problem after your abortion. Next. Okay, just keep going. Sorry, that's the reference. If anybody wants to have a complete set of slides, they can be emailed to you afterwards, and then you'll have the references in case this is something where you want to write a paper or you want the references. So that's why I've got them in there. But um, the, the uh, textbook says that women whose psychological functioning was marginal or poor before the abortion experience a higher incidence of negative repercussions afterward. That's true. Everybody agrees on that. Next. But some women who didn't have problems to start with also end up with problems after the abortion. Next. Okay, and so the textbook, A Clinician's Guide, lists several different things that they consider negative reactions that they see. Now, where we don't have consensus is how many women are having these reactions. But nevertheless, these are reactions that they mention. Depression, guilt, shame, regret, and grief. And let me just say, we're going to discuss in a minute two cases of real women I've known to put a face on these. But just think about, look and see whether you think that, you know, the women we're going to talk about, depression, guilt, shame, regret, or grief, Next. They define depression in the textbook by listing some of these symptoms, and they say that crying frequently, suicidal thoughts, performing poorly at work or school, losing interest in enjoyable activities, feeling worthless, these can be symptoms of depression. So when they say depression, that's what they're talking about. Next. Um, the other thing is for guilt. Now, guilt actually is a symptom of clinical depression. But here they're treating guilt as a separate problem, which is okay, and they're listing what they think is a symptom of guilt. So they say engaging in self-punishing behaviors such as substance abuse and relationships with abusive partners. And let me just mention that we could spend an hour just looking at the data on substance abuse because there are cases, there are many published studies where women were not alcoholics to start with, they weren't big drinkers, after the abortion is when they started drinking and drugging. And we know many women 
who've had that situation, and sometimes they can't recover. They can go to their AA and their NA, but they don't recover until they actually deal with their abortion because it's a, it's a very difficult thing for them. That's the stress that brought that out. And in addition, there are women who are drinking and drugging during their next pregnancy, and there's a lot of data on that. But in any case, relationships with abusive partners, that's right, and they know it. Self-punishing behaviors, also interpreting any misfortune, illness or accident as signs of God's punishment. Anything that happens, if they have a miscarriage later, if they have a stillbirth later, they blame themselves and they think, God's punishing me for that abortion. And everything that they go through life, when things happen, that's God. They know that they're condemned. They know it was the unforgivable sin. They're permanently excommunicated. That's what they think. And God's getting them. When bad things happen, God's getting them. Next. Okay, so now some other symptoms that the textbook mentions as far as guilt, which actually, they're not just symptoms of guilt. These are symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. If you look at the diagnostic criteria for PTSD, you will see these symptoms. But they mention them, and they don't want to say it's PTSD. But they mention nightmares about babies, blocking out the experience, and avoiding anything that triggers memories of the event. And we're going to see in one of the cases a woman who had some avoidance anyway. Um, next. Okay, so then shame, and that is also one of the things, again, the abortion providers see sometimes after abortion, relentless thoughts of being a bad person, engaging in self-destructive uh, behaviors or fear of anyone finding out about the abortion. Next. Um, regret is self-explanatory, and next. Um, unresolved grief, uh, engaging in thoughts and behaviors that perpetuate a strong emotional investment in the pregnancy or that prevent the redirection of emotional energy into moving forward. Yes. Okay, so this is another textbook. Now that 1999 textbook that we saw a minute ago, I just want to mention that that one is still in use. And it's actually, if you go to the National Abortion Federation webpage, you will see that they cite this in their 2013 clinical policy guidelines. They mention that as a standard for their counseling. So the one we looked at, that's still good, but now they've got a new one, and it's not just a new edition of the old book, different title, most of the same editors, most of the same authors. It's similar. And again on this one, now it's 2009, so they've kind of gotten some newer information. Um, down in the bottom, in the lower right, is the logo that they're currently using for the National Abortion Federation. So this is also uh, from the abortion provider side. It's authoritative. Okay, go ahead. And this book now lists 18 risk factors for who's going to have mental health problems after abortion. And the other one had 14. Some of them are very similar. They're worded similar, but um, just now they've got a few more, a little bit of change. Keep going. It's the citation. The one other talk that we're going to mention is the, or the document, the American Psychiatric, I'm sorry, the American Psychological Association in 2008, they had a task force on abortion and mental health, and they published a report on what they thought is the kind of state of the art today as far as abortion and mental health. And so this document, they didn't put this in the headline or the press release, but they found 17 different risk factors that indicate subgroups of women who are at increased risk for problems after their abortion. And so we're going to look at those also. Okay. Um, so today's presentation, I want to focus on two case reports of women I know who experience problems after abortion, and I want to think about them in terms of their risk factors and what they had going into this. Why were they vulnerable to problems? Um, go ahead. Yes. Okay. So Melody, she was a married woman who was the mother of two children. And they were financially secure enough that she was able to be a stay-at-home mom, and she loved being a mom. She loved taking care of her kids. 
her husband had a professional career, and you can think, you know, attorney or veterinarian or something of that nature, where you have a good income, and he had, he had a stable position where he's bringing in money, but he just felt like, you know, I don't have energy for another child. We have, we have our two, we're good. And so he wanted her to terminate the pregnancy. She was shocked because the pregnancy was wanted and meaningful to her. This is her third pregnancy. She didn't have a prior psychiatric history. And now, uh, Melody, because she wanted the baby, she talked to her husband. She said, well, let's go talk to our pastor about this. They're Protestants. They go to their pastor. And the minister said that he, he thought she should go along with her husband. You know, if he doesn't have more energy and he's happy with the family the way it is, she needs to go ahead and terminate. And so with the pressure from her husband and her pastor, she did terminate the pregnancy, but she believed that she had committed the unforgivable sin. She felt unable to pray, which was something that had certainly been important to her all her life, and she was unable to function in her roles as wife, mother, and homemaker. And at that point, she was staying awake all night crying, but then she was too tired to get up and face the day and take care of her living children. Okay, so she had a major depressive episode um, and uh, was suicidal, so she was hospitalized and given antidepressant medication. Now, one of the things I have to tell you is she was my patient, but she really belonged to my supervisor because I, that was in my internship year. And when I heard her story, you know, she described herself as being a well woman and now she has this problem because she had an abortion and, you know, unforgivable sin and she can't live with herself. And I'm thinking we need to address what she's defining as the primary issue. And in actual fact, if it had been a rape, we know. If somebody says that I've been raped, I have a problem, we understand the connection. But because often there's an inclination to believe that the abortion is not the problem, my supervisor said to me, no, 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 you don't understand. It's a chemical imbalance. And when the medicine takes effect, she's going to quit obsessing about her abortion. Okay? So this is what women encounter. At the front end of their abortion, they're getting counseling like I just described to you. And now after the abortion, this isn't about the abortion. Okay? So nobody has problems from abortion. You have to understand that. So... Um, what, what I did, because again, I have no experience, I have no one to guide me on this, but I was aware that there were peer counselors, women who had abortions, who had faith-based help, who received healing through Jesus, and I thought maybe one of them should come and talk to her, because I sure don't know what to say to her. And so I asked my supervisor, I said, well, you know, I know someone who does like abortion support groups, could I have a peer counselor come in and talk to her? And my supervisor was like, well, I can't do any harm, fine. You know, if you want to do this, it's all right. And so a peer counselor prayed with her and helped her to resolve the abortion issues. Excuse me a second. And the episode resolved. <coughs> but I felt like that was legitimate to do. I was, um, my residency was at North Carolina Baptist Hospital, which is a faith-based hospital that has, <coughs> excuse me, that has um, a chaplaincy training program. There's like a you know, pastoral internship that they can do there. And, but I couldn't get a pastor from that program or chaplain to come and talk to my person. And so then you know, I had to reach a little bit further out to get a peer counselor to come in. But they could do what at that time I could not do. OK, go ahead. And the episode resolved. She went home. Um, go ahead, keep going again. Um, now, the other person that I'm going to tell you about is Donna, who was 17 years old, and she was engaged to be married, but her fiancé was away at a job training program, and this was many years ago in the days before texting and email, and she really was out of communication with her fiancé. But when she discovered she was pregnant, she was very happy about it, 
and she concealed the pregnancy from her mother. That pregnancy was wanted and meaningful to her, but she knew what her mother would think, and so she was, you know, wearing the big shirts and kind of keeping it quiet. Go ahead. When the mother discovered the pregnancy, she said, you can't live at home and have that baby. And that's very often what mothers will say, or fathers, you can't live at home and have that baby. She wanted to keep the pregnancy a secret due to the mother. Okay, the mother was ha the one having the shame. Donna wasn't having all the shame problem, but the mother had the shame, wanted to keep the secret because they were a prominent family and things like this shouldn't happen in our family. So she wanted Donna to have an abortion because that would be the obvious solution if you had to keep it quiet. And so the mother made the, ap the appointment at the abortion clinic. And Donna, at that time, senior in high school, no job, no money. She did have religious beliefs against abortion. She expressed commitment to the pregnancy. And the way she did that, part of it, she went to a pro-life pregnancy resource center and tried to find housing, someplace where she could live, since she had already been told she wouldn't be able to live at home, because it was her intent to carry on with the pregnancy. The pregnancy center could not find her a place to live in time. And often, especially with teens and with older teens, you're kind of betwixt and between because you're not really old enough to be on your own. And there are legal issues about taking in someone else's child. But at, and at the same time, where can you go anyway when you have no money? So they found her something, but not in time. Next. Um, so the mother took Donna to the clinic, but Donna fully intended, which she did, she intended to tell the doctor and nurse, I don't consent for this. So she said, she told them, I want my baby, I don't give consent for an abortion, but Donna's mother had paid for an abortion and signed for an abortion. Donna, Donna was considered to be a minor child, and the abortion took place. She was pushed down on the table, sedated and restrained, and she had an abortion that she did not consent to. And it was a second trimester abortion, okay? So let me just say this, because I think this is good for all of us to know, there is now a center against forced abortion, which did not exist probably 15 years ago when Donna had her abortion. I'm not sure what year now, but um, forced abortion took place in the mistaken belief that because Donna was not of legal age, she didn't have the right to make her own choice. But in the US, in every state, and in Puerto Rico, I believe also, in all 50 states, it is illegal to force anyone to have an abortion against their wishes. It's a crime. You, the, the, a person who's a victim of that, if they knew, they can press criminal charges as well as civil charges. And if they make that known up front, then that can prevent a lot of problems. So next. Um, so if you just Google Center Against Forced Abortion, you can find it. They have a very nice a dear parent letter that a girl can give to her parents and say, you know, dear mom and dad, if you or dear parent, if you're reading this letter, you already know that your daughter is pregnant. We're very sorry you're going through all this stress, but you need to know it's actually illegal to tell a child that they have to leave or else have an abortion, you know, that, that you still have a responsibility, a legal responsibility to support a child. It is illegal to use physical violence to coerce someone to have an abortion or to threaten physical violence. You can't say that you're gonna beat them if they don't have an abortion. That's illegal. And dear parents, if you persist in what you are doing, here's the criminal charges that you could be charged with and you can also be sued civilly. So you might wanna just take advantage of some of the help that's available because there are people standing by who would love to help you and your daughters with this issue. And so there's the Dear Parent letter, there's also a Dear Doctor letter. The Dear Doctor letter actually can be mailed out to all the clinics in the area saying, Dear Doctor, people are trying to force me to have an abortion, but I don't want an abortion. So I'm telling you right now, if somebody brings me to your clinic, I am not going to be free to give consent or not give consent. But I'm telling you right now, I don't agree to this abortion. And unless you want to be party to these various different crimes, 
and have legal charges and you know civil suit and all this, you need to know that, that this is where this is heading. And so hopefully if a doctor sees a letter like that, but they can get legal representation. So it's a good resource and I felt like that's a good thing for, because anyone might be involved in such a case, it's actually very frequent. You have to think, Donna's not the only one. If Donna was the only one out of 50 million American women who've had abortions, there wouldn't be a whole center against forced abortion. But they've got business every day. And sometimes I'm on their prayer list, you get, you say, we have a client who's, we're, she's being taken to the clinic today and we're gonna be outside praying and um, please keep her in prayer. And it's confidential, there's no names, but sometimes I get the, the prayer no notifications because I'm on their intercessors list. But there's prayer going up and, and this happens frequently and not enough young women know about this. Next. Okay, so anyway, Donna, how did she do after abortion? She had panic episodes and there actually is literature that, um, yes, there is increased panic after panic episodes after abortion. But she would um, often, she'd be in her car, she'd be planning to take her children to a play date or something, and she'd be having rapid heart rate, shortness of breath, chest pain. She would think she's having a heart attack and have to go to the ER, or she'd be throwing up, nausea and vomiting, and um, she would not be able to follow through with social appointments, play dates for her children, things like that, go ahead. So yeah, the panic episodes were very disruptive, prevented her from working, prevented her from keeping appointments for social activities, frequently caused her to go to the ER because she thought she was having a heart attack. Next. Um, she also had symptoms of depression, which we've already talked about. Next. Um, PTSD symptoms, there's a lot. People don't realize how far reaching this is and how it affects your life. But one of the areas that you can have as far as areas of symptoms with PTSD detachment from close relationships or being estranged from other people. And I didn't know Donna at the time of her abortion. I didn't know her until 12 years later. But she did marry her fiance, but the marriage ended in divorce. I don't know if it ended because of PTSD, but looking at relationships where she had some problems, that's one. She had problems bonding with her children <coughs> to the point where when she divorced, the, the father was given custody of her children for a period of time. The children preferred to be with the father than to be with Donna. And that says a lot because very often judges are very sympathetic to giving custody to mothers. And in this case, she didn't want custody and the children didn't want to be with mom. So that says something, that the bonding problems. And she was estranged from her mother for 12 years, which shouldn't be a surprise. Um, go ahead. Um, she would have very intense distress when there were reminders of the abortion, things like she'd see commercials for choice on TV, and there'd be like a perky woman saying, oh, I'm so happy we have choice legal in this country. She has called me in tears, sobbing, saying, it wasn't a choice for me. Next. Okay, so she would also avoid driving, even driving on the street where the clinic had been located, and she would go out of her way to avoid driving past the clinic. Um, so she had other things, guilt and shame, uh, different other symptoms of PTSD. Go ahead. Um, she was tried on an antidepressant uh, for treatment and she had partial benefit, but she spent a lot of time and energy and useless cardiac evaluations, expensive cardiac evaluations, and she didn't get better until she attended a faith-based abortion recovery weekend, which was Rachel's Vineyard, and she had good resolution of her symptoms afterward. That's where I known her, and that's, that's, that's where I was able to facilitate her being able to forgive her mother, and that's often part of the healing process. Um, you often think, you, people think in terms of abortion being a sin, they need to go to confession, and then they're good, and that takes care of everything. But in reality, Donna lost her first child, 
And she didn't want to lose that child. She loved that child and wanted to carry that child. And that was a great tragedy for her. So you can see how she would have issues involving that baby. Um, she also had issues involving her mother and other family members who pressured for that abortion. And until people are able to forgive the others, they often are not able to heal. When she went and could spend a weekend praying about this and having guidance on these points, she, her life was transformed. Go ahead. Um, she actually, after that, people in her parish and people in some of the local parishes who knew her made comments to me saying, because she talked about it publicly then, and they said, you know, I've been praying for her. I didn't know what was wrong. I knew there was something wrong. And they said, I had no idea. Because, and in fact, the pastor of her parish had said at one time, oh, nobody in this parish has had an abortion. We don't need abortion recovery programs because nobody in this parish would do that. We're a very pro-life parish. We, we don't believe in abortion. And yet, they don't believe in abortion. Donna didn't believe in abortion, but Donna had an abortion, and she needed help dealing with that. So she spoke about it to the youth group, to the teens, and people in the local area were invited. At the time that she chose to speak, those in charge of the arrangements made sure that other people were there because of Donna's history of not really being able to follow through. She's not well, you know, we hope she'll come, she wants to do this, but who knows. But she wanted, that was, she really sought that opportunity. She talked about her story publicly, she talked to news media, she had her story in a magazine locally. Um, so, and people would say she's so different because she would show up, she'd be dressed nicely, she'd connect with people, and she told her story. She'd say, oh, how old are you? I was that age when I had my abortion. So she was doing well at last contact, trained for a career that she has moved into. So now let's look at the risk factors, okay. Um, so researchers from both sides agree on these risk factors, and um, one of the risk factors is that women who are committed or attached to a pregnancy or who preferred to carry to term are at risk for mental health problems after abortion. Now that should be a no-brainer, but think, the fact that they can say this, that researchers on both sides know this, means that there are women who are attached to their pregnancy, just like Melody or Donna, who had an abortion, and there were enough of them to make a study group, and then they could compare with other people who weren't attached, and they could say, yes, if they're attached, they don't do as well afterwards. They do have problems. Well, should be a no-brainer, but I'm saying there's enough, enough of them. Um, and the textbook from 1999 mentioned commitment to the pregnancy is a risk factor. Next one is that in the, uh, yeah, in the uh, upgraded, the 2009 textbook, they mentioned commitment and attachment. Commitment might mean you intend to carry it to term, you're actually seeking housing so that you can proceed with your pregnancy. Attachment is more of a bonding thing, although sometimes people will split hairs and say, well, attachment's not exactly bonding, but you know, think about how mothers bond to their babies and think about that occurring during pregnancy, which it does. So they're specifying attachment as being a risk factor specifically. Okay, go ahead. Um, the next thing, uh, researchers from both sides, if you're coerced or pressured, you're at increased risk. Again, they've had enough people to do those studies, and that's both textbooks, at least 13 other studies, the APA report, and a group from the American Medical Association. Next, um, keep going. Um, lack of emotional or social support being a risk factor. Both textbooks, the APA, and at least 20 studies. And again, I would say that probably Melody and Donna both lacked that support. There was nobody in their corner who could say, this is how you can have your baby. All right. Um, advanced stage of pregnancy, that would be Donna, a late-term abortion after first trimester. 
Um, that's a risk factor both in, listed in the 2009 textbook and the APA report. And that would be Donna because she waited. Why did she have such a late abortion? She was attached and committed to her pregnancy. She wanted the baby. She was trying to do everything she could to have the baby. But she ended up with an abortion. And so those later abortions, you have to think about why are people, people having those later abortions. Maybe they didn't want an abortion. That might be some of it sometimes. Perceived need for secrecy, that was certainly a factor with Donna, but although it was the instigator was her mother. People who have a, a high need for secrecy, which is often a reason for abortion, um, that's a risk factor, both in the 2009 textbook and the APA report. Next. Adolescence is a risk factor that's been shown in multiple studies. Um, some of them will lump in like young adults, early 20s with youngers, or sometimes it's just teens. But certainly it's been shown to be a risk factor. Many studies and the APA uh, determine that. So, um, so now I want to look specifically at the APA risk factors that apply out of the 17, the ones that apply to Donna and Melody specifically, just with the APA. Term and these are their language. Terminating a pregnancy that's wanted or meaningful, feelings of commitment to the pregnancy, perceived pressure from others to terminate a pregnancy. And remember, it's in the eye of the beholder. If the woman thinks it's coercion, it's coercion. Um, that's what counts. Lack of perceived social support from others, perceived need for secrecy. No, this is really for Donna more. The need for secrecy being late term other than first trimester and being an adolescent rather than an adult. Okay. So another one that wasn't listed by the APA or the textbooks, but there have been a number of studies showing that if you have religious beliefs against abortion or that you believe you're acting against your values, that that puts you at risk for having problems later. And you can see that. That was one of the factors for Melody. She believed it was wrong and that she had sinned, and that was major for her. Go ahead. Um, okay, so the 2009 textbook actually has a screening form to show you some of the risk factors. It doesn't go into all of them at all, but it says you should screen people. It's telling the abortion providers, screen people ahead of time to see if they have these problems. Okay, go ahead, these risk factors. So if Donna or Melody would have answered those questions, which they didn't, um, it would have, sorry, uh, it would have, they would have been asked about their beliefs about abortion and their religious beliefs. They would have been asked who is pressuring them and do they want the baby instead of the abortion. Now, if they'd just been asked those questions and had a discussion, that might have made a difference, but they weren't prepared for discussion. You know, the clinic just kind of pushed Donna right on through. Um, so, yeah, and if they had talked with Donna and her mother or Melody and her husband, would it have made a difference? We really don't know because that didn't take place. But that would be a good thing up front. Um, before we go further, one of the things I want to say is that many of you are going to end up in the future working in secular settings where you're not free. If you're a nurse in a clinic, you're not free to say, well, you know, I'm a Catholic and we think this is really wrong and it's a sin, so you shouldn't do it. You know, you can't have those conversations and keep your job or even keep your licensure in many states. And so whether a counselor, social worker, nurse, the conversation that you can have with women is to find out, first of all, they may very well, there's a very good chance, better than 50-50, there's a good chance that they want that baby, but nobody else wants it. Nobody sat down with them to figure out how can they make this happen, okay? So they may very well have attached to their baby or they've got risk factors. If you talk to them about risk factors that are published in an abortion provider textbook, they're endorsed by the National Abortion Federation, that everybody knows are valid, 
how can you be faulted? How is that against your licensure? You can have these conversations, and that should be part of the informed consent. When women are being railroaded into something, what they're hearing is there's no problem. There's no side effects. Instead of saying, you know, you've got some risk factors here. Let's talk about what this means for your life. Okay, so let's really understand the risk factors and think about how many women are at risk. Okay, prenatal bonding. It looked like it was Don and Melody. Were they the only ones who have bonding to their baby beforehand? Um, okay, we've already said attachment. Um, attachment definitely takes place. There's studies going back 60 years that say that the, this attachment starts during pregnancy. It's not something that happens at birth, it's during pregnancy. And that it's predictive. There is research showing it's predictive that the degree of attachment you have, predictive for how much uh, severity of PTSD symptoms and that kind of thing, how much trauma and distress you will have later if you take the life of that baby. Okay. Um, so now there's a study, 2012, it's a Swedish study. These were women who were at an abortion clinic for a first trimester abortion. They asked them questions, they got numerical data as well as qualitative data, and they found out that 67% of the women indicated attachment to the baby prior to abortion. So even though they're having the abortion, 67% had bonding. And in their study, as with other studies, attachment to the fetus was associated with decreased psychological well-being. Next. And just some quotes from some of the women. One woman said, immediately when I found out I was pregnant, I felt like a mother. It felt like I had some kind of affinity with the child, and now afterwards it feels empty. Another woman said, I lit a candle for the little one and asked for forgiveness. Okay, if there was no relationship, you wouldn't need to ask forgiveness or light the candle, would you? Next. Um, so that's just the reference. Keep going. Okay, so that wasn't just Swedish women, although this was not quite as many, but this was Australian women at the abortion clinic being surveyed. 40% had talked to their fetus. 30% had rubbed their stomach. There were different questions, and these were just some of the most striking, but some of them had higher percentages. Um, next. Okay, next. Okay, um, next. Vincent Rue in 2004. Go ahead. Okay, so this was a study that compared post-abortive women from Russia and from America. And these weren't people in the post-abortion support groups who had problems. These were women in a general gynecology population. And when they were asked, did you feel attached to your child? 37% of the Russian women, 39% of the, the American women said yes, they felt attached to their child. Next. Okay, uh, this study is a qualitative study, women's views at menopause. Now with a qualitative study, you take kind of focus group type things where you take a smaller number, thank you, smaller number of women and asking them in-depth questions to understand their experience. You can't generalize, you can't say that every woman is gonna have this kind of experience, but um, it's one that you ought to read if you have any interest in this at all. Let me just see which, um, okay, the other, other way, yeah. Well, okay, so, all the women in this study said they continued to think about the child they had aborted many years previously, so there's long-lasting attachment. It doesn't go away. It's not like you're attached to the baby, but now the baby is gone, you're fine, you move forward. These are women who got to the age of menopause, and they're looking back at the abortions they had, maybe at your age, okay? And they each, each woman in the study, and they were like, I've just put three examples, but they were like maybe 20 or 25 women. They each I had long-lasting attachment. Eileen's, or Elaine, Elaine said, this child of mine would have been so many years old this month. And she was referring to the due date that she'd been given. She says, I still think about this baby. I don't think I'll ever forget if I live to be 100. 
And Elaine said, I was just so depressed, you know, after the abortion, I was so depressed, I didn't want to live anymore. I was suicidal and I started drinking because all I could think about is that I've murdered this baby. And she said it affected her a lot more than he, she ever thought it would. Well, yes, because we're taught there are no problems. There are no side effects. It's easy. You'll have another baby, okay? So it affected her a lot more than she ever thought it would. And so decades later, they're having these experiences. And again, the authors concede you cannot generalize. This is just a, few, a handful of English women. We don't know that all women have this, but considering it's so negative, um, they, can, they said, we will conclude this, that it's likely that women may benefit from the availability of post-termination counseling, not necessarily just in the immediate aftermath, but at different points after the procedure. And they were saying, women may need this throughout their whole lives. Well, my goodness, if they're going to need counseling throughout their whole lives, why are they doing this? And why are we being pushed through so easily? And said, oh, no side effects. Okay. So pressure or coercion. And, and I would just say about that, that that kind of is confirmatory that you know, there's a lot of women having problems because there's a lot of women having attachment. That gives voice to it. Pressure or coercion, um, the same American and Russian study, 64% of the American women said they were pressured. Okay, so this is way more than half. We don't know. That's one study. Somebody else could say, well, it's only one study. Do a better one and find out because I think it's probably more than that. But um, abortions after the 12th week. In the United States, looking at abortion provider data, that's more than 100,000. Again, remember, the women who are having those, those um, late, wait a minute, later abortions, what's that? Okay, multi, multi, okay, wait a minute. Abo the later abortions after the 12th week, like Donna, that is more than 100,000 a year. Wait, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. So that's more than 100,000 annually. Multiple abortions, that's a risk factor we didn't mention, but that's very well documented, and the APA knows that. It's in the APA report. Um, so that's more than half a million women every year. So these are not small groups, okay? That th those have more problems. W young women under age 21, that's, now this is only the teens up through age 19, 184,000. And if you include the no, 20, I could not find the exact data, but you could probably have about 200,000. You could certainly round to 200,000. That's a big chunk of young women who are having abortions, and we know they're more at risk. Because women aged 20 to 24 are 33% of all abortions. That's Guttmacher data. And actually, there are studies showing that even like 20 to 24, those women are at risk more so than, say, older women having abortions. But anyway, um, let me just look here. So young women, there's a lot of different studies that they don't always neatly just take the same exact age group. But younger women are at higher risk. And the younger, the more risk. Now, here's another one that was not in the textbooks. And it's not, I'm not sure whether or not it's in the APA report, but there is literature on this, that if you've been sexually abused, actually, no, it is, I'm sorry, it is in the textbooks, that women who've had trauma or previous abuse, things like that, that and past, including past sexual abuse, that those women are at increased risk. That's a huge risk group in our country, that there's good, solid data that 25% of all American women have had sexual abuse. A lot of those women are going to the abortion clinics. And of course, if you are currently being a victim of incest and you get rid of the pregnancy, your abuser is free to continue abusing you. And you could have 10 abortions, you know? You could just keep on going, that that's a way to conceal the crimes of sexual abuse against women. But in any case, those women are more at risk, and that's a lot of women. Um, so basically what we see here is that there are many different risk factors that affect large percentages of these subgroups 
of women having abortions. And the majority of women who are actually in real life, real world, going to the abortion clinic to have abortions, probably they have one or more risk factors. How could you not? It's like the majority of American women. If you've got half a million American women who have the risk factor of having had a prior abortion, that's huge. You know, it's clearly more than half of the women. The, the vast majority of women have risk factors. Okay, so now I want to tell you, and I'm going to stop and take questions, or we can take even after we break. I can still take more questions, or you can email me. But I want to tell you what the APA report concluded, and it's very important. Notice what they say and what they don't say. Okay. Okay, wait, sorry. Okay, in their press release, they said there's no credible evidence that a single abortion, a single elective abortion of an unwanted pregnancy, in and of itself causes mental health problems for adult women. So they're saying, the reason they narrowed it down like that, because they know that the teens are in risk groups. They know that, it, well, if it's an unwanted pregnancy, okay, but they know that some wanted pregnancies are being aborted, and they're not talking about them. When they say no problem, no, they know. And the multiple abortions, they, they know that there are risk factors out there, so they've really narrowed it down, saying, well, we're talking about women, when we say no problem, women who have a single elective abortion, unwanted pregnancy, not a problem for adult women. But there's a reason they said it like that. And in addition, okay, sorry. Um, they also mentioned in the body, in the actual report, when they made, not in the press release, but in the report, they mentioned specifically a first trimester abortion, because they know that later ones are associated with more problems. So um, basically what they've done is they've narrowed down a cherry-picked group that they've defined that they say there's no problem, and instead they're, um, you know, basically they know that the majority are having problems, but they've narrowed it down, they want to pretend, and I think they were very careful in how they worded it for a reason. Because they, they want, so every mother can look that up and say, oh, there's no problems with abortion. I mean, this is the right thing to do for my daughter so she can go to college, and they don't think about the mental health consequence or what that's going to mean to her, possibly for the rest of her life. I've had women, even 80 years old, phoning me for help about an abortion and wanting to be connected to a priest. You know, and like, the, like thinking they've got to have a special priest because they don't know if they can talk to anybody about this. You know, it's just because it hasn't been talked about, it's this shameful secret, and they don't know who they can trust. And so in a diocesan paper, an 80-year-old woman called me because she'd seen that I was doing a healing service at a church, you know? So um, anyway, what we're going to do, because now we're getting out of time, let me just... Yeah, the, the APA conclusion doesn't reflect the reality of those 17 subgroups who are at increased risk. Um, and they've also, the other thing they had to do is they had to exclude most of the world literature, because there is a study that I like to tell people about by Suleiman and colleagues from 2007. <laughs> this was done at an abortion clinic. People were coming in for their abortions. They checked cortisol levels. They did before and after psychological tests using seven different tests. And they compared, and then they checked people out at one month and at three months, and they found out that 17, no, 18% of their patients were developing post-traumatic stress disorder, and they don't know why. They compared two kinds of anesthesia to see if they could make it better. The idea for the study came from one of their anesthesiologists, but one, they said, you know, the, the authors of that study said, you know, this is almost one in five. This is high, and they don't know what to do about it, but they could see PTSD, but the APA their report came out in 2008. This was a 2007 study. They didn't talk about it. They just said, no, 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 there's no credible evidence for PTSD. So they had to kind of cherry pick their studies as well to exclude a good study and then say, oh, no, that's just pro-life propaganda, seriously.
Okay, so um, PTSD is one thing. Suicide, this was with a record-based study in Finland. I just want to show you. They, they had the actual death certificates. They had the, um, the, the, health, the public health records, you know, government health insurance. No pregnancy is here. If you gave birth, it's actually lower suicide rate. You're taking care of yourself for your baby. Miscarriage suicide rate goes up a little. Abortion, look how much higher. So it's actually 650% higher. That was in Finland, but there's other good studies that show the same thing. We're not going to have time to tell everything. Um, I think what I'm going to do is click to the end, show you really quick about how do you help. There's four steps to healing. You can take a copy of my book. Um, okay. I want to show you, I don't know, it doesn't come out so well on the slide now. This, there's a sculpture of a, a mother who is grieving her abortion, and her head is down, she's kneeling, you don't see the whole thing here. The child is extending forgiveness. It's a beautiful visual, and there's a prayer that was approved by the USCCB that's attached. You can get a, um, a prayer card with that on it, okay? And uh, if you get my slides, you'll see where to get that. But the four steps involve healing in relationship with God, baby, others, and self. There's some evidence for that. We need to do more research to have even a stronger evidence basis, but there's certainly there's basis. When you think about the studies showing baby bonding, you can't just tell people, join a bicycle club, get your mind off it. It's like they really need to deal with the baby issues. So I've covered that in my book. And I'd be happy to come back and do some more training for people who want to be able, because a lot of the people, there's actually, there was a meta-analysis that showed that 10% of all mental health problems in women in the United States would be attributable to abortion. Think about that, 10% of all mental health problems. It's also a big need in terms of evangelization. This is a thing, women stop coming to church if they believe they're permanently excommunicated or they've committed the unforgivable sin, they don't come back, they don't darken our doors. So of course pastors can say, no, we don't have any abortion in our church, nobody would have that. And they don't go to confession because they already know they're going to hell and they're permanently excommunicated. I talked on the phone to a woman just seeing the ad for a healing service. She called me and she's like, no, but my, my, my husband doesn't know about the abortion and when he has a business Christmas party that night, we can't come. It was during Advent. And I said, well, you know, you could just, because she was even in a different state. She was in South Carolina instead of North Carolina, where I am. And I said, well, you know, you could go to a priest in your area. And she said, I could? I thought it was permanently excommunicated. And so, I mean, people do have this idea. I know a woman who came to a retreat I did, she was a grandmother. She was raising all her grandkids, sent them all to Catholic schools. And she didn't go to Mass because she thought she was permanently excommunicated, she was not permitted to go to Mass. And so she was able to come back to the sacraments at a Rachel's Vineyard weekend. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.